This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It is not common, but it happened. It happened at our Bible study group uh, on Friday night that someone was actually there reading 2 Samuel 11 for the first time. It's not common, right? Because we are all so familiar with the passage. And so when uh, this uh, friend of ours was reading the passage, and when we came to verse 4 where it says, David sent messengers to get her, she came to him, and he slept with her. I could see from the corner of my eye he did this. <laughs> because this is David. Right, he's been uh, following the story of David. This is the, the David that the king, uh, the king that God had chosen. This is David that was the man after God's own heart. This was the noble and loyal and kind king. And yet here in 2 Samuel 11, this is the David that does this. You see, the problem for most of us is that we are so familiar with the story that we are not shocked anymore. Uh, we are not shocked because we know the story. But the problem is this, if we think we know the story, how is God's word going to speak to us? How is God's word going to challenge and confront us? Because once we think we know it, there's an immunity already. And so I think the thing that we need to do as we begin is to go to God and to come with his help to his word afresh. We need to say to God, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's pray together. Father, it is your kindness that some of us are familiar with your word, that this is not a word that is new to us. But Father, in your kindness, please do not let this familiarity cause us to think that we know, cause us to not uh, be seeking you, be uh, with our hearts and minds trying to engage with your word, listening to what you have to say to us. So Father, please speak and cause all your servants here to be eager to listen, eager to obey, eager to hear you. Amen. So you can see from the outline in the bulletin that we have divided this into four scenes. Uh, and the first is David and Bathsheba. And the setting is told that it's the time when kings go to war, but David uh, was not at war with his army. He remained in Jerusalem. And uh, remaining in Jerusalem, he got up from his bed and he, you know, he was bored. He got up one night and walked on the flat roof of his palace. David was doing the Old Testament equivalent of sitting on the couch late at night and channel surfing. He was doing the Old Testament equivalent of browsing the internet in a dark room alone in his room. And from the rooftop, the perspective of his roof, he could see a woman bathing. And this woman was a looker. She was very beautiful. And we are told David sent someone to find out about her. And the man's response to David, as he tells her, is that 
This is Bathsheba. This is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, the messenger that David sent came back with information and the person coming back tells David all these informations and uh, the narrator captures this for us because he wants us to see that David is told this is not just some object. This is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. Because when we uh, commit sexual sin, it always causes us to objectify the person. That the person is just, it uh, becomes an object to fulfill our pleasure. But no, this is someone's daughter, someone's wife. So David, in hearing this, had the opportunity to stop. But he didn't, no. Instead, he sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. And then we are told in verse 4 that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And probably that's the reason why she was bathing. And uh, she's definitely not bathing in a public space, you know. But it's because David was higher up and that's why he could see what no one else could see. Now, why are we told that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, from her you know, monthly period? We are told this because... So that in verse 5, when we find out the woman conceived, and when the woman tells David, I am pregnant, there is no doubt whatsoever that the child is David's. Because she has just had her, period. And then David sleeps with her, and she conceives. So the child is absolutely David's. It cannot be Uriah's. And so from that scene where David is told this, again, he had another opportunity to repent. But what was David's response? Well, we are told, as we move on to the next scene of uh, David and Uriah, that David sent for Uriah. And at this point in time, if you are reading this for the first time, and your knowledge of David, the kind king, David, the noble king, the, the, the king who is after God's own heart, you could be forgiven for thinking, at this point, maybe he's sending for Uriah so that he can make things right. He's sending for Uriah so that he can confess, Uriah, I've done this devious sin against you. Can you forgive me? He sends for Uriah, but what does David do? Uriah comes to him, and it's all you know the pretext of wanting to find out how the war is going. Oh, how's Joab? How's the battle? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Anyway, you must be tired. Why don't you go home and wash your feet? Now, what does washing your feet mean? Well, uh, whatever it is, Uriah left the place and David sends a gift uh, after Uriah. Uh, what is the gift that David sends? Maybe it's oysters. You know what oysters are for, right? Yeah, okay. So maybe he sends oysters, um, but the whole reason for sending uh, Uriah to come back and sending Uriah home is part of David's plan A. He's trying to get Uriah home, sleep with Bathsheba, to cover up his sin. But we are told, as David is told, that Uriah did not go home. And so presumably the next day he got Uriah again and he asked him, Hey, 
didn't you just come back? Didn't you just come back from sleeping in the tent? Why didn't you go home? Okay, that's David's question. Why didn't you go home? And then uh, Uriah gives his answer. And I realized as I was studying this passage that whenever I read this text, I'm making an assumption, as I believe uh, you are as well. Now, what is the assumption that you and I are making when we read this part of 2 Samuel 11? We make the assumption that Uriah doesn't know. That he's just this noble person that, okay, you know, I, I, all my brothers, you know, shongti, shongti, you know, they are there camping. Oh, I can't come back and I, I, can't, I can't be sleeping in my mouth. I can't be enjoying, you know, hot shower and, uh, you know, home-cooked meal. I can't be doing that. You know, shongti, shongti. No, we assume that Uriah doesn't know. But let's question that assumption. What if Uriah actually has a clue? What if he does know? Because this sin that David committed, I mean, he had messengers send, you know, they got to get Bathsheba, and, you know, there were people who, who see and know about it. What if word got out and Uriah actually knew? Well, if he knew, then the words that Uriah actually says to David take on new meaning. Because if Uriah knows, then he obviously doesn't do what David, the king, commanded him to do, which is to go home. Now, I mean, as a soldier coming back from battle, he had every right. There was nothing in Old Testament law that you know, forbade him from going back and enjoying uh, home comforts. But he didn't. And this is his answer to the king. He says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. Now notice the first thing that he says, the ark, he makes mention of the ark. Because Uriah is not just a Hittite who follows pagan gods. Uriah is now someone who cares about the ark. Presumably Uriah is a believer in Yahweh. He cares about where the ark is and he is reminding David, the ark is out there. The ark that contains the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that tell us from God, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not commit adultery. Uriah, his first word makes mention of the ark. The second thing that Uriah mentions is he refers to the army as Israel and Judah. And though he was a Hittite, though he was by birth a foreigner, he identifies himself here as belonging to Israel and Judah, part of that army. He was not a mercenary that was being paid to fight the battle. No, he was part of God's people, serving with God's people. And so he, in a way, is reminding David that your sin is not in taking a foreigner's wife. Your sin is not in taking uh, the wife of an enemy, but you have taken a brother's wife. You have taken your neighbor's wife. And then he says, Oh, my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in open country. So he's trying to show the contrast between life at the battlefront. You know, out there where it's rough, dangerous, 
And here, back in Jerusalem, where it's safe and comfy, how could I, when the rest of the army is out there, where it's rough and dangerous, how could I, when I'm back home, indulge in this? And yet you, my king, you have. How could I sleep with my wife when my brothers are out there? But you, my king, you have slept with my wife. And then he says, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Why does he end by swearing an oath? I mean, you know, if he, if he really didn't know, then the king says, hey, why didn't you go home? I mean, then he just say, oh, you know, I just didn't feel right, this and that. But why swear an oath? I mean, it is, it is an, uh, a very serious thing that he's doing here. It's Uriah saying, I will never... For your sake, my king, I will never cover up for you. Now, this is on the assumption that Uriah knows. It's just an assumption. But it's a challenge for us not to assume that he didn't. Okay, I leave it up to you how you prefer to take it. But nevertheless, if we are right in thinking uh, he knows or he didn't know, nevertheless, here is yet another opportunity. For David to repent. Yet he does not, and instead he launches plan B. And plan B is to get Uriah to stay one more day, to get Uriah drunk, hoping that his uh, defenses are lowered. But Uriah, uh, even with uh, that in his system, does not go home to sleep with his wife. And so David has no choice but to launch plan C. And that brings us to uh, the third scene, David and Joab. And so he writes a letter to Joab and basically he says to Joab, put Uriah where it's most dangerous. And then, you know, sound the call. And then everyone knows it's to retreat except Uriah because this is a prearranged signal. And so that Uriah can be killed so that his sin, David's sin, can be covered up. And so Uriah is given basically his death warrant in his hand and he goes and delivers his death warrant to Joab and Joab does as the king commands him. And the shocking thing is that it was not just Uriah who died. Because to carry out the plan, the platoon that Uriah was in was also sacrificed. And so here we come to, you know, how, how, how could that moment of David, you know, in one sense, shrieking from his responsibilities, not going to war, you know, remaining at home, that led to that moment of lust. That moment of lust led to lies, led to cover-up, led, led to the adultery, and now it's led to murder. Murder not just of one man, but a whole platoon of uh, soldiers were sacrificed. And Joab sends word to David, telling him of what has happened. And in verse 25, David says to the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Now you would have uh, known in your Bible studies that literally what David says is, Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. It's not evil in my eyes, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. 
And so Uriah is dead. And verse 26, Uriah's wife. You see how the narrator reminds us that it is Uriah's wife. When she heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Did David mourn? We're not told. But Bathsheba did. And when the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And so it's covered up. People would think, oh, wow, just seven months and a baby is born. Premature. Oh, it happens, but baby looks healthy. You know, so David thinks, okay, now he's got the woman, he's got this sin covered up. No one knows. But of course, the last scene, just one sentence, we are reminded that the character that was, in one sense, not mentioned throughout this whole account, that character, though he was not mentioned, was always present. That character, though he was not mentioned, his eyes saw the situation. His hand was nevertheless at work. And we are told that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Or more literally, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, David said, let this thing not be evil in your eyes. Yes, it may not have been evil in the eyes of David. It may not have been the eyes, uh, evil in the eyes of Joab. But it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this chapter 2, Samuel 11, marks a pivotal turning point. Pivotal turning point in the life of David. His life will never be the same. This king that we have followed through all the way from 1 Samuel and now, you know, we've seen that he has lived a charmed life. He had the favor of God. God had chosen him. He had done almost everything. I mean, you look through those many chapters of, of, of uh the narrative devoted to him and you will be hard-pressed to find anything against David until we come to here. And from this point on, we will see over the page and the chapters that follow the consequences of David's sin. It does not just affect him, it affects his whole family, it affects the whole nation. And so what are we to learn from this story? Story is not over yet, but we pause here in chapter 11 and we ask, what are we to learn? Why have we been given this story? Please have no doubt. Please have no doubt about the destructive nature of sexual sin. Yes, all sin is dangerous, all sin is destructive, but here, I mean, the focus here, please have no doubt whatsoever. Do not flirt with danger. Do not play with fire. Have no doubt whatsoever about the destructive nature of sexual sin. I mean, just think. Just think of what would happen if you or I flirted with this and went all the way and actually committed adultery. Just think what would happen. What would be the consequence? Just think of the damage it will cause to your marriage. Just think of the damage it will cause to your children and the relationship you have with your children. Just think of the shame and humiliation you will cause to your family, to your parents. Just think of the hurt and damage we would bring 
on the church family. And most importantly, the dishonor and grief that we would bring on our God. The God who has shown us nothing but kindness. Just, just as the God who has shown David nothing but kindness. That's why this David was able to show other people kindness. But this David had now thrown God's kindness into the bin and kicked at it. Just think of how we would dishonor the gospel, dishonor the God who loves us. Saying it's not just adultery, it's not just you know fornication, sex outside of marriage that is destructive. You know, many people, many of us here in this room, we may be flirting, we may be engaging in, we may not really be facing up to the sexual sin that is pornography. Because now with the you know, smartphones, the access to it is so much easier. And the number of people who are accessing this, flirting with this, playing with this, is getting more and more. And the age of the people accessing this, engaging in this sexual sin, is getting younger and younger. Now, can we fool ourselves into thinking that, okay, it's not adultery. You know, it's, 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 not, it's I'm not, not actually sleeping with someone. It is relatively harmless. No one is actually getting hurt. No, no, no. We need to remember that behind every pornographic image is someone's little girl. Behind every pornographic, there is a broken-hearted father and mother. There is a person that is made in the image of God that is now being exploited for sexual pleasure and gratification. There is someone being hurt. And we need to realize that it is not just them, it is also us. Maybe the first victim of pornographic sexual sin is us. Because studies have shown that consistent use of pornography causes the brain to change and be molded in such a way that it becomes harder and harder to develop intimacy and bond and commitment to one person. Basically, the use of porn is making it harder and harder to be committed to a lifelong uh, fulfilling relationship. It's just like the name tag. You know, you stick it on, you see, once you, when the first time you stick it on, it's so hard to pull it off. But if you pull it off, and you stick it on again, and it still sticks, but you pull it off, stick it somewhere else, pull it off, stick it somewhere else. I mean, after 50 times, it will basically be unable to stay on. You just shake and it will come off. That is what pornography is doing to our brains. It is causing attachment damage. Porn destroys our ability to enjoy sexual fulfillment in the way God has intended. It is training our hearts that our spouse's body is not good enough. It is training our hearts that one body is not good enough. But friends, see in contrast the wisdom of God, Proverbs 5 that we read. 
drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well? Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? No, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. I mean, look at the wisdom of the Bible. Look at, in contrast, the goodness and the sort of life God intends for His people to live. And see and be aware and don't doubt the destructive nature of sexual sin. So that's the first thing we must learn. Second thing we must learn is we must ask, why? Why did David do it? I mean, he already has more than one wife. And we are told that Abigail is already so pretty, right? I mean, why did David do it? How could he have done it? And when we asked this question at a Bible study, some of the answers were, because of Bathsheba, <laughs> because she was so beautiful, because she was so provocative. Uh, another answer was, oh, because it started with him being lazy, you know, being bored. He wasn't doing what God had called him to do. He wasn't at the battlefield fighting. And because of, you know, that, that one lapse, you know, led to one thing to another. Now, why... Did David do it? Let me try and illustrate with um, the water bottle. Now, if I open this, and then, I won't really do it now, but you know, if I go down to the musician's area, you know, they're staring at me now, they're the, the, the ones closest to me, okay, and I do this, okay, what's going to happen? Tell me, what's going to happen? I stand in front of, you know, uh, you know Brian and Huisin, color-coordinated as usual, and then I do this, okay? What's going to happen? Water is going to come out from the bottle. Okay, I want to ask you a very serious question. Why did water come out of the bottle? And your first instinct is to think or to laugh. Okay, okay. No, don't laugh. Your first instinct to think or to laugh oh, because you did this. La. Yes, that is true. But I want you to grasp this profound truth. Water came out of the bottle because there was water in the bottle. If you fill this instead with milk. You can do this for a thousand years, but water would not come out. Why did David do it? Why would you do it? Why do you sin? Why do you get angry? Why is there lust? Why is there greed? Why is there anger and hurt? All these things come out because it is inside us. Water comes out because there is water inside us. So we cannot look at this situation, this story of David and go, oh, how could he do it? No, no, we must look at this story and this story is telling us that what David was capable of doing, you and I are capable of doing because why David did it 
was because it came out of a sinful, rebellious, corrupted heart. And that sinful, rebellious, corrupted heart is in you and I as well. So we need to be warned that we are capable. We are capable of the most heinous sins. This is not some criminal that, you know, spiraled down out of control. I mean, David is one of the best examples in the Bible already, and yet he does this. It means you and I are capable. And it is to our detriment if we ignore this fact. No, we need to be aware, we need to face up to why we do sin, why and a possibility, the potential of even greater and more serious sin. Right, just think, just think what happens when we sin. Right, any sin. Right? It doesn't have to be sexual sin when we get angry or when we, when we envy or I mean just think what happens when we sin. We begin to find reasons. We begin to think of excuses for what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's because of that person. Because, because, because he kept pushing my buttons. Oh, no, it's because, yeah, because this, 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 this few weeks, my boss has just been so unreasonable. You know, that's, that's why I did this. Oh, no, because, oh, this, the situation I'm in is so stressful. Oh, you know, the kids, they're doing this again to me. That's why, that's why I, I lost my temper at them. No, see, what were we doing? What are we doing when we are looking for these reasons and excuses? We are, coming forward, standing before God, and we are being our own defense lawyer. And we are trying to present a case for our own righteousness. What we are believing at that point, what we are saying is that my greatest problem is outside of me. It is the situation, it is the boss, it is the kids, it is this person, it is you know, this person being unreasonable. We are saying what I need most is to be rescued from these difficult people, these sinners around me. That's what we are saying. But the story of David is telling us loud and clear that the greatest problem is what is inside of me, not outside of me. My greatest problem is me. And what I need most is not to be saved from the sinners outside of me. What I need most is to be saved from me, from the sinner that is me. What I need most is the Savior who can save me from me. Because that is my greatest problem. Me. Which leads us to the third thing that we learn from this passage. That we have such a savior. Because this story, as it shows the the the, the, the down downfall of David, tells us clearly that, that this is not the king. This is not the answer to God's promises. This is not the one we should put our hope in. But God's promises have been fulfilled. He has given us the king that we need because David points to the true king. David is not the answer. David points ahead to the true king who is without any sin. David used his power for his interest to get someone killed. But Jesus, our true king, 
He used his power for our best interest and he got killed in our place. And so because we have such a saviour, the fundamental message that we say to someone who has been sleeping around, who has lost her virginity, is not, oh, you know, who's going to marry you now? Or are you going to get STD? The fundamental message that we're going to say to a guy who is struggling with pornography is not, oh, you know, how, how, how are you going to get intimate with your wife in the future? This is going to cause, you know, damage to your marriage. And, and to, no, no. Yes, all these things are true. But the fundamental message that we say is that we have a Savior who has loved us with amazing love. Can you grasp that there is a king who has given his life for you. Do you know that it is true that because he has given his life, there is now forgiveness for everything that you have done? Yes, there will be consequences, but your sins are now paid for. Now there is grace to, from this point onward, repent, own up to your sin. There is now the power to deal with your greatest problem. There is now grace for you to live and honor this king. Because we have such a savior who has loved us. Amazing love. May God help us to know that and to honor him. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg